0: Welcome to the Oak Grove Podcast. I want to dive into God's Word without any further ado because that's what we are here to enjoy, the exposition of God's Word. So open your Bible to the book of Matthew with me. We're going to finish off chapter Three. We started chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, and we left the final portion, which relates the baptism of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We left that so that we could study that in and of itself and dedicate an entire sermon to that, because there is there are ramifications and implications to this baptism of Christ that I feel like we would do so well to to fully understand Matthew chapter 3, we're going to start reading at verse 13, that's 13, and finish at verse 17. I do not cease to hear the end of how I apparently mispronounced the number 13, so I'm going to try and make sure we're all on the same page, we're at the same verse. Matthew chapter 3. Let's go together to God's Word and read these few verses. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is going to be the key phrase for us here this morning, in whom I am well please. Now, the baptism of Christ functions to show and display for us many key events in the life of Jesus. There's more than one thing happening in this glorious event. It is, it is the coronation of Christ as King. Scholars and theologians have for many centuries called this the, the coronation, the commencement of the public ministry of Christ. And also, it is actually His ordination as High Priest, So those two things become become one event in the life of Jesus at his baptism. The great commentator J.C. Ryle from the 19th century wrote this. We have here the account of the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was his first step when he entered on his ministry. When the Jewish priests took up their office, they were washed with water. We see that recorded in Exodus 29 verse 4. When our great high priest begins the great work that he came into the world to accomplish, he was publicly baptized. The commencement of Jesus' ministry, his ordination as high priest, this this is a magnificent moment in the life of Christ that, as I've already said, has tremendous implications for how we understand the gospel itself. So beyond those two things, and you might think that in those two things, we would have ample content to do a whole sermon series on the ordination of Christ as king, uh, sorry, the coronation of Christ as king, the ordination of Christ as high priest. But we're actually going to look at something more significant to the gospel promise itself for us. There is something else happening here that is central to salvific hope, and that is what we look to discover Today, in fact, in fact, without this event in Christ's life, there is no salvation at all. There is no good news, there's no gospel, there's no hope at all. As Romans 10:4 says, "For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In fact, it was R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, passed away just a, just a few years ago at the end of 2017, but a wonderful contemporary theologian and, and preacher and Bible teacher of, of our generation, R.C. Sproul says about this passage, this is, the, let, me re, let me rephrase that, Sproul says, there is no more important text in the New Testament that defines the work of Jesus. There is no more important text so what that means is if we come to the story of Jesus' baptism and we come, with, we come with ideas and concepts and presuppositions that we import to the text and we don't really see what's going on here, we miss the most glorious promise of all. So let's, let's go to the scene. Let's try and put ourselves there at the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing the, the many hundreds, the thousands that have come out to him. And let's see if we can become something of an eyewitness here this morning. John, as you can picture it, John the Baptist, is running an assembly line of of repentant people into the water of Jordan. Seemingly from sunrise to sundown. He may have had his disciples helping out, but he was preaching the whole time. You have to remember that that there there is a queue miles long. There is a lineup of people to get to John. Scholars have told us, and we've already read this in the New Testament, that John's ministry was so so magnetic that it emptied entire villages and towns and even most of Jerusalem came out to be baptized by him. So from sunup to sundown, John is standing, waiting in the waters of the River Jordan as person after person after person comes to him to be baptized, single file seemingly, Pouring down the bank of the river, these people, to John, he lowers them into the water and then brings them back up. Now, I've been privileged in my many years of doing pastoral ministry of not just conducting baptisms, I love baptisms, but I remember on certain occasions conducting more than one baptisms. At times, I've done 10, 12, 15 baptisms back to back. I can assure you, it is tremendously strenuous work. There's John the Baptist, putting people down in the water, pulling them back up again, putting people down in the water, pulling them back up again. In this, in this assembly line of the penitents that have come to be baptized, people confessing their sins and being dunked below the waterline of the Jordan. Up they come and they're sent away with the admonition ringing in their ears, bare fruit worthy of repentance. Then as we're there, we're at the scene, we're eyewitnesses this morning, we're seeing this all play out, and if you will, use your imaginative powers this morning to not just, not just see all this as a bystander, but to perhaps watch all this taking place in front of you as you're standing in the line, waiting for your turn, you've, you've felt this, this, this spiritual awakening, you've heard the words of the prophet John the Baptist, and, and you felt the crushing sense of conviction of sin, and you just want to be baptized. And then as you look ahead, you see stepping up to John, the next man in line walks forward and requests baptism, and John puts a halt to the whole affair. John just stops dead in his tracks. Now, John doesn't know who this person is. I mean, John knows who he is, but John doesn't personally know him, although they are actually half-cousins. Here is Jesus from Nazareth. And the same spirit that inspired John the Baptist in utero praise testifies to his heart that day that this is the one who was to come. Now, John has known to anticipate this Messiah, but he's no less surprised when the moment arrives. John chapter 1. Verse 30 to 31, and then we'll read verse 33. John 1 records this. This is he of whom it is said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. These are the words of John the Baptist. For he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water, John says. Sometimes... Sometimes the way we think about John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth, that they they grow up together and they're just like any old pair of cousins getting getting into all kinds of activities as young boys do, that's not what's going on at all. Mary and John's mother Elizabeth were acquainted, but it appears Jesus and John had not yet met. He says, I did not know him. But I knew that he should be revealed to Israel, and therefore, John says, I came baptizing with water. Verse 33 of John 1, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now there's some confusion. Remember, we're, we're standing there, aren't we? We're, we're, we're in that line. we we feel the sense of the need of repentance. We want to be baptized. We're, we're standing in that long line of thousands of penitents waiting to be dunked under the water by this John the Baptist. And suddenly, as people are slowly shuffling forward, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, in a line. Although you're, you're in a line, the line's kind of moving, and then suddenly it just abruptly stops. And everyone starts murmuring, what, what is this? What's going on? What, what's happening there's some confusion. What's the delay? Some people start to ask. What's the cause for the stoppage? Some people wonder. Is John going to expel this Nazarene? Remember, John had done that. There had been people that had come down into the water of Jordan to be baptized by Jesus, and John could smell a rat. And he would say to them, who warned you to flee from the rat to come? and expel them from the water, and refuse to baptize. Maybe, maybe some people in this long line of penitence started to ask the question, is this Nazarene going to be kicked out? Is that why John has stopped? Is that why there's this, the pause, the, the halt? What ensues is a conversation. Verse 15 of Matthew 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus comes and stands face to face with his forerunner. With the prophet that was to come to clear the ground. You remember we studied this when we studied what the purpose of a forerunner was in the ancient, in the ancient world. It was to prepare the roads, to, to make the path straight, to, to bring up low roads or to bring down mountainous paths. The forerunner was to, was to herald and declare the coming of the king prepare you the way. Now, John and Jesus are face to face, and from what we can tell, for the first time. And the only way that John knows who this is, is there is seemingly an overwhelming sense of conviction that this is the Messiah. Now, from what we can tell, Jesus does not start the conversation. If you go back with me to Matthew chapter 3, let's take a look at how this precisely plays out. Verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, and John tried to prevent him. I don't know about you, but when you read that, it, it almost seems like Jesus just stepped into the water, walked up to John as though he was any other person there that day and expected to be dropped below the water and pulled up and be given the same admonition to bear fruit worthy of repentance. And something inside John immediately arrests him. He says to this Jesus, there is no way, there is no way that I'm going to baptize you. But if you don't mind, could you perhaps flip the script, and baptize me. Wouldn't that have have been a bizarre scene? Could you imagine standing there in the line, waiting for your turn to get down into the Jordan, and as you're watching John baptize, 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 next thing you know, John, from some weird stranger from Nazareth, is getting baptized? Jesus says, no, John, no. We, We need to do this. We have to do this. For in so doing this, John... We fulfill all righteousness. That is a that is a peculiar phrase, is it not? Now, what Jesus is saying here is not, it's not, come on, cousin, let's let's do this, let's give the people a show. Yeah, I, I'm Messiah, right? You're the Baptist. Let's let's do this. And people will tell their grandkids. Let's just give them a story. That's not what's going on here at all. The key lies in the phrase, as I've already stated, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying that whilst He is perfect, and we know that of our Savior, our Messiah, was sin-free, without defilement, without spot or blemish, or any such thing. And yet Jesus was saying to the Baptist, there is one jot of duty remaining. There is one tittle of the law left, outstanding. And while it remains outstanding, we have not yet fulfilled all righteousness. While this one duty remains outstanding, Jesus remains an insufficient savior. Our entire salvation will hinge upon this. Significant moment. Now, not only this moment, there is still yet, of course, the public ministry, the cross, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. We understand all that. But we do have a propensity to downplay this moment. A spirit-filled prophet named John the Baptist, let me just make the case for you this morning. A spirit-filled prophet named John the Baptist has arisen out of the Judean desert and commanded baptism signifying repentance. This prophet must be heeded as he is sent from God and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is Jesus' motivation for attending to this solemn duty. The banks are, of the River Jordan are lined with people. As we read in, in Chapter 3, verse 5 of Matthew, we we know that Jerusalem, all Judea, all the regions surrounding Jordan came out to be baptized. There's quite a crowd there on this day. And what we read is that in Jesus, the Father is well pleased. Now, in making this case that when Jesus says to John, we must undergo this process, We must follow through on this one duty. I must be baptized by you because if I don't, we have not fulfilled all righteousness. The next key to that is this phrase, which the Father makes from heaven. As heaven opens, the Spirit descends like a dove upon Christ. And the voice from heaven is that the Father is well-pleased. Now, again, we should look into this phrase and ask, what's the significance of this? If, if we have supposed that, uh, that all this is, is, you know, fathers out there, if you've ever had one of your children get baptized, I have privilege to have one of my children at this point baptized, confessing Christ. It is a grand day of great fatherly joy. Is that is that what's going on for Jesus? Is, is the father bending over the balcony of heaven? Well done, son. Good, good job. You know, like a, like a father at the ball game when his son makes the winning play. Is that, is that what's going on here? I'm sure the father was overjoyed. Don't misunderstand me. But there's so much more to the words. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The pleasure of the father was... Literally, approval. I am well accepting. Could be a literal rendering, rendering of the Greek. I am accepting. Jesus says to John the Baptist, we need to go through this baptism process so we can fulfill all righteousness. And then the Father gives his seal of approval. I accept. I approve. I am well pleased. It's not the case, please don't misunderstand this text, it's not the case that for the 30 years previous, Jesus and the Father were somewhat at odds. And finally Jesus gets baptized, the Father says, all right, son, now I'm happy, now you've made me glad, now we can have a relationship. The Father was always well pleased with Jesus. So what is it about this moment that brings the commendation from heaven to say the Father is well accepting, well approving, The pleasure of the Father is to accept the perfection of the Son for the very distinct and sole purpose of the salvation that Jesus will freely offer sinners like us. Jesus had for three decades, he had been perfecting all righteousness, perfecting Righteousness, fulfilling the law, every duty, every jot, every tittle, every commandment, every requirement, Jesus perfectly fulfilled. Jesus is the Son, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And you'll remember if you know your Old Testament, Adam failed, Israel failed, priests failed, kings failed, even prophets had their moments of failure. And Jesus has come to do victoriously, and more importantly, learn this word, vicariously, what all of those others had failed to do. Every king still sunken in sin. Every priest, though washed, though performing sacrifice, still stained with sin. Every prophet, though uttering the word of the Lord, though bearing the burden of the Lord, still with sin. The only prophet, priest, king, the only one to come, the only son of man to come that could ever be truly without sin is Jesus. But but doesn't that raise another question? Doesn't that raise the question, why is Jesus bothering to obey all these laws? And the most inane of them all, the most seemingly unnecessary, is baptism? Wouldn't you think? If God came out of heaven into our world, in our form, in his perfect holiness, why would he need to fulfill righteousness? Did Jesus fall out of heaven? In a state of sin? Did did he come here in a a state of moral bankruptcy? Did he he need to kind of work off a a moral debt? No. Jesus didn't. And why baptism? I I don't think any of us, including me, have ever really stopped to chew upon this concept. Why is Jesus getting baptized? It's a baptism of repentance. What's he repenting of? There is literally nothing in Jesus' life that he needs to repent of. But as he states, this is to fulfill all righteousness. As I said, Adam failed, Israel failed, prophet, priest, king failed, and Jesus has come to do vicariously what they were unable to do, to be perfect Jesus has come to be perfect, not just in and of himself. He is innately perfect as he is truly divine, but to be perfect even as the Father in heaven, as perfect. As man to be perfect. He is the last Adam, the true Israel, the faithful prophet, the holy priest, the righteous king. He is, Jesus is salvation. No, we don't put our hope in any human institution, government, or religion, or ritual, because we have Christ. Jesus is not just undergoing baptism as a demonstration of how holy he is, but he is doing it to accrue a holiness for sinners, fallen souls. In fact, the truth of the gospel is Jesus is doing it for us. Here here is the greatest contrast of all contrasts. We have labored this morning to show that Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, not a single thought, not a single attitude, not a single word, not a single action that Jesus ever did, took, thought, or whatever you like, had any stain of sin to it. But the same could not be said for us. The same could not be said for us. In fact, every thought we've ever had, every action we've ever taken, everything we've ever done, every word we've ever said has somehow the stain of self-intoxication, self-imagined autonomy, and sin. It's just the air we breathe. And Jesus is the great contrast to each and every one of us. So this... Righteousness that Jesus is laboring to accrue, not immediately for himself. He is God incarnate, which means God in our flesh. He is God in our form. He doesn't need righteousness. Who needs righteousness in this equation? It's you and I. And Jesus comes into the waters of baptism as the apex moment of accruing and fulfilling a righteousness that will be, here's another word, I need you to know and learn, a righteousness that will be imputed to all who believe. You call this the doctrine of imputation. It's a great word. It's a word that means to credit, although it's not initially yours. It's a word that means to transfer what doesn't initially or intrinsically belong to you. It's a word that means sometimes in the Greek, the phrase will be, will be clothe yourself. You can be clothed in something. You can be wrapped in it. You can, you can appear in it. You can be imputed. It doesn't mean infused. The gospel does not promise that God's righteousness will be infused in you. That is that's a dangerous error. But it does mean that you will be credited with all of this 30 years of perfect obedience that Jesus fulfilled, even climaxing in the baptism of the Jordan River, will be accredited to you who believe. Let me say this. The gospel salvation that Jesus has wrought and offered to all our sinners is better than a clean slate. Have you heard it it said that way before? Jesus gives us a clean slate. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear preachers say that, I feel immediately despondent. It's not good news for me. I know how to mess up a clean slate. I've done it before. I don't want a clean slate. It's not good for me. You want want God to save me and set me back at at zero, at neutral? And then what am I going to do? Have I, have I got to go and be sin-free forever now? Is that, is that what salvation is? And some people preach it like that. You received Jesus. You recited a sinner's prayer. You signed a decision card. And now at this moment, you're forgiven of all your sins. Don't mess it up. It's the most depressing and erroneous gospel promise of all. You can't go five minutes without messing. Excuse me for saying so not because I know how sinful you are, but because I know you are human. No, the gospel promise of Christ is not to set us back to zero, but in fact to impute to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. Did Jesus need to be baptized by John that day? No, John knew it. Jesus knew it. But did you need to be baptized by John? Yes, did I need to be baptized by John? Yes. How are you going to achieve that? Is that, is that what salvation is? Jesus came and he said, you done messed up. That's my, that's my best, best way of phrasing it. Most theologically astute, bad grammar, great doctrine. You and I, we messed up royally. Oh, here comes Jesus. And you know what his plan is? Is to wipe away all of that record. Good, great. That's a start. I'm pretty good at accruing a new record though. Is there anything better he can offer? Is it, is it he wipes away that record and uh, now all you need to do is find John the Baptist, get baptized by him in the River Jordan, and you're good to go? That's not good news. John the Baptist is not here. The River Jordan has no innate spiritual properties to it. No, we need a Messiah that doesn't bring us to salvation halfway, but takes us the whole way and gives us all that is required, gives us full obedience to the law, perfect righteousness. Yes, he cleans the slate, and then he piles upon that slate the perfect righteousness that he accrued and says, now if you are in Christ, you are an entirely saved, and righteous person in the eyes of God. Let me read this text in Romans again, because I feel like after all of that labor that we've gone through, I feel like I'm working a little harder than you. Maybe that's not the case. But all of that work that we've just done together, now hear these words in Romans ten four, And hear these for what promise they offer you. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Wait, how is he the end of the law for righteousness? Does he do away with the law? No. Jesus explicitly says, don't think I have come to abolish the law. Even all of heaven and all of earth shall pass away before one punctuation mark of the law shall disappear. Okay. So what does this mean? He's the end of the law for righteousness. But it means this. It means this, in Galatians 5 verse 4 says this, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Christ is the end of the law. What do the words say? For righteousness. It doesn't say he's the end of the law, period. He's just the end. The law's gone, done, dusted, over. Some people preach that. Some people believe that. There are extremes Where we need to clarify, Christ isn't the end of the law. But he's the end of the law for righteousness. That means that if you are going to be righteous, to enter into God's heaven and abide with God in glory forever. To be with God, the very God of the scripture who is so holy and righteous, his eyes can't even look on sin. If you're going to be with that God forever in glory... You better have a perfect righteousness. And this righteousness is provided in Christ. Let me read you Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteousness, one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life verse 19 for as by one man's disobedience this is if you hadn't caught on referring to Adam and Adam's fall for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous what does it say it says many will be made righteous this is not this is not clean-slate christianity This is God in Christ providing a salvation that already entirely fulfills the law on your behalf and then accredits and attributes to you that perfect law keeping in Christ. Jesus' victorious obedience is a vicarious obedience for you and I. This is how the promise... For those of us that are saved, we've received Christ by faith. The promise is to us who are a new creation. The promise is not just for forgiveness. But what does the Scripture say? That they might become the righteousness of God. Of course, I'm referring to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 21. Let me read you these two verses. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 21, for he, that's the Father, made him, that's the Son, Christ. The Father made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What do we stand to become if we're in Christ? Not neutral, not just forgiven, and dare I say it, but not just righteous. That's not what the verse said. The verse said, if we are in Christ by faith, we stand to become the righteousness, no less, of God. Not the righteousness of Adam. Adam. Right? Adam was created in righteousness. Adam was created in perfection. Adam was created sin-free. And Adam could certainly mess that up and did. God doesn't offer that to you and I. He offers us a righteousness that we can't harm or hinder, corrupt or corrode. Our salvation is reserved in heaven for you who by faith have believed in these promises of God. So now... Now we understand these two phrases, these key phrases in Matthew chapter 3. Firstly, Jesus comes up to John. Hey, John, baptize me. John says, far be it from me to do that. I ain't no fool. I'm not going to baptize God incarnate if you don't mind. And Jesus says, hey, John, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then... As Jesus comes up out of the water, this glorious scene unfolds. The dove, well, the spirit that descends like a dove. I know know we've already seen those depictions, right, of of a dove descending gracefully upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit's not a dove, just to be clear. But the the eyewitnesses to the event said that the the way the spirit came down and sat upon Christ, rested upon Christ, was the way that you might envision a dove gracefully descending. And then this voice from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It's at that moment that the Father made that declaration. Not just for all who were standing by, and it certainly was for them, but most specifically for you and I who have received Christ. When we have those days where we feel like we're certainly not nearly good enough for God to save, we can come back to these words. Jesus is well-pleasing to the Father. And the Father has accepted Christ on our behalf. And the Father has accepted the righteousness of Christ as our righteousness that the Father made him Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us. You see, this doctrine of imputation, it has to go both ways. This transaction is not just righteousness from Christ to us, but it's our sin to him. That Jesus stands in our place, on our behalf, takes our punishment, and then he grants us to be credited with his perfect righteousness. So these words over Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. If we are in Christ by faith, we are a new creation. And those very words from God are announced over us and our lives. This is my child in whom I am well pleased. And the best part of that is it doesn't depend on your performance. Because Jesus has already Perfectly obeyed every law for you. And then when Jesus hung on the cross, God accounted Christ as guilty of our sins and dealt with our punishment then and there. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we in him, never outside of Christ, but in Christ might become the very righteousness of God. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? We're going to close our service here, close our message with a word of of prayer to God. Help us to know these truths. We're going to ask God to help us to feel this confidence that should come from knowing our salvation is secure because Christ has done it all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this grace. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, which communicates these truths to our hearts through your word. We thank you, Father, that Jesus spent his his 30 years perfecting law, perfecting righteousness, obeying exactly as the law commanded. And then coming out to John the Baptist to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness. Father, not for him, we understand that he didn't need to be righteous. He was perfectly, divinely righteous. But we are the ones that stand morally bankrupt. We are the ones that stand before the law, condemned and without hope. We're so thankful that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. We thank you for Jesus. He didn't just die on the cross to forgive us, but he lived his life to grant us righteousness. Righteousness. And Father, we thank you that this covenant of grace that we've entered into, receiving the perfect righteousness of Christ, is a covenant that cannot be broken. We thank you for this security, this hope, and this gospel glory. We ask your grace upon this. May this word bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.